Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University podcast, which you can hear on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you want to watch the podcast, you'll be able to do so on our YouTube simulcast. Just look for Making Sense at the Alhambra Investments website. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Joining me, as always, is the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, Jeff Snyder. Jeff, we're going to be talking about a hole today. Now, I know naturally that lends some opportunities for making jokes at economists' expense, but we're not going to be talking about those holes. We're going to be talking about the hole that has been dug that we're all trying to clamber out of. So COVID came, it's got a shovel, it's dug a hole for us, and you've actually put some numbers, right? We all metaphorically speak about the rut, the hole that we've fallen into. How deep is it? You've put some numbers in a few of your articles, at least three, to try to get an idea of how much, how high we have to climb to get out. So why don't we start with your first article? Well, Emil, what we're, I think what we're starting from is the idea of the V-shaped recovery. What is, what is the best case? What are the optimists talking about? Where are they thinking, you know, how is this really going to resolve itself in the best way possible? And, and I think a lot of people have in their minds that because this is basically a non-economic in nature, it's basically, you know, an act of God sort of kind of thing, that once it's over with, it's over with. That's it. Done. Finito. Once we get out of the once we get out of the pandemic response, we're right back into the economy we left. It's it's like a time jump almost. You know, you can envision the movie Back to the Future. You know, flipping over a couple months in time and arriving in the future as if nothing happened in between. And I think that's that's you know that's where we start from. The this is the idea that I think is driving a lot of people in the stock market, driving a lot of media commentary too about that. Okay, yeah, this was bad. Q two is going to be really awful. But, you know, the government's doing a lot of stuff. The Federal Reserve's obviously doing a lot of stuff. Those things, along with getting through this pandemic, mean when we get to the other side of it, which look, looks like is, 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 is uh, relatively close to close at hand, once we get there, it'll be just as if we had, nothing had happened. You know, it was, a, it was just a short-term bad memory that we'll all laugh about, in, you know, by the end of the year. And, you know... And there's another part of this too. It's it's also the the inflation versus deflation debate, because there's you know thinking that way, thinking that the economy is going to immediately go back to the way it was, then you have to be concerned that oh wait a minute maybe the government did way too much, maybe the government spent too much, maybe the Federal Reserve printed too much money. Therefore, when we do get back to normal very quickly, it's going to be we're going to have we're going to have another set of problems, which will be inflationary problems. So we have all of these questions all wrapped up and, and, and teed up for us, whereas it, it doesn't, I don't think people really stop to understand, well, wait a minute, what about today? What, what, what actually, what kind of a hole are we in today? Well, how big is the hole? What does it look like? I mean, what is it going to, how is it going to impact us going forward? If you don't stop and think about this interim period, this, this, this you know, the, the economic dislocation as it is actually right now, then you know, I think you're 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 somewhat blind to the risks of what comes next. That's right, and you know there have been a number of surveys that have come out in the last few, at least this week. The uh, the conference board regarding the United States, you know, sentiment. Uh, something out of South Korea has come out for the eurozone for Germany. The GFK uh, survey regarding German confidence. 
And a few of those surveys actually reported all-time record month-over-month changes in positive terms, meaning that we seem to have been putting in the bottom, and now we're on the recovery. But here's the amazing thing. More than a couple of they put in record turnarounds, and all it will take now is seven more consecutive record-tying increases in confidence just to get back to the ground that we uh, lost in March and April. And that's, that's sort of what you're doing in your article, whereas these are just sentiment surveys. You're putting some numbers to at least the United States economy as to how deep we fell in. So let's put some numbers on this. You know, what I did was I started with nominal GDP and unseasonally adjusted because that's really what the BEA estimates is what's actually happening. When the, when the, when the BEA presents its GDP report, what they show you, you know, real GDP is about 20 some trillion. That's a seasonally adjusted annual rate. What we want to know is, you know, we don't want to know about annual rates. We don't want to know about seasonal adjustments. We're trying to get a sense of actual activity that's actually lost during this shutdown period or this, what I think is more importantly, the global financial crisis number two period. And so if we start out with nominal non-adjusted GDP, what we get is, you know, the economy output, uh, according to the, to the BEA, is somewhere around five trillion a quarter, a little bit more than that over the last couple of years, but somewhere around five trillion dollars a quarter. That's what happens in terms of nominal output. Now, most estimates for the second quarter using real GDP at annual rates are suggesting that it's going to decline seasonally adjusted by about 40% or so, maybe even more, maybe a little bit less. So translating that into nominal terms, I'm, I, I use just for you know rough guess here, conservative estimate, 35% year over year decline, which gives us our estimate for how big this economic hole is. So if we assume that there's a 35% year over year decline in the second quarter, which is you know the big shutdown quarter, we've got April, we've got most, most of May where everything's closed off. Then we have a magnificent, massive recovery in the third quarter where it gets nominal GDP. So it's only, as you were pointing out, only 10% below where it was the year before. And then in the fourth quarter, only 5%. So we're, we were almost back to even again by the end of the year. So we have, we have this huge deficit in the second quarter, then much, much smaller deficits in the third and fourth quarter, which gives rise to this, this notion in the third quarter that's going to be the best ever which it will be. GDP in the third quarter will probably be the biggest positive that, there, that, we've, that we've seen in, the, in any series. And again, that's, that's an illusion. It's, it's not a real actual growth. It's simply coming off the bottom. So if we put all of these estimates together, what we find is that the net, net, uh, in net dollar terms, nominal GDP terms, our deficit in the second quarter is about 2.1 trillion. That's the amount of output that's been lost or that, that's being lost as we speak that we're never going to get back. That's just, you know, people sitting at home, people not spending, people having no jobs, no incomes, you know, saving rather than spending, all these things, businesses that are shut down. That's a, a $2.1 trillion hole just for the second quarter. Now, if you add the, the small hole in the first quarter, which was, you know, the first quarter was already down and weak, plus the third and fourth quarter, you get a total gap of around 3.4 trillion dollars that's that's lost output rough gas lost output for all of 2020 compared to where the economy would have been or maybe should have been had this COVID-19 thing never happened so we're 3.4 trillion dollars 
looking, that's the deficit we're looking at for this year. Now, based, you know, we have this 300, this massive multi-trillion dollar hole that we're looking at, big, big, huge economic deficit, which is why, I mean, that's, the government has responded in the way that it has. It, it's, it's just gone crazy with all of these massive spending ideas, what it calls stimulus, and what a lot of people think of as stimulus, but again, you know, that's one of the reasons why I want to go through this exercise. How can it be stimulus if, in total, all of the spending, the CARES Act, as they call it, totals up to about $2.2 trillion in gross dollars. If that isn't even as big as the economic deficit we're facing, how can it actually be stimulus? It, maybe it helps make uh, ease the pain of this massive deficit that's been caused by this economic dislocation, but it certainly is not stimulus, and it's not something that actually um, alleviates this kind of economic deficit. You know, and that's and that's that's before we even get into the, the to the to the details of the CARES Act, which, as you see here, you know, only about half of it, not even half of it, is direct spending, direct payments to individuals and businesses. Uh, most of it is grants, loans to governments, and then a whole bunch of other stuff that I mean, you really can't count as stimulus. You know, forty-five billion dollars in disaster relief to FEMA—that's not economic stimulus. That's that's the government doing what it thinks is necessary to fight the pandemic and to flatten the curve, so to speak, but that's, that's not stimulus. But even if we treat it as stimulus, even if we treat every single dollar under the CARES Act as a dollar of economic output and activity, it's still dwarfed by the size of the economic deficit we're looking at. And I think my numbers here are actually pretty, pretty conservative. I think the deficit, when, it, when all is said and done, is gonna be much bigger, especially in the third and fourth quarter, where I don't think the rebound is gonna to get to be as big as people are hoping it will be. So even on its face, even in its most charitable terms, what we're looking at is, you know, the government is already well behind where the economy is, is already looking to have lost activity and potential and output. Jeff, let's look at what the optimists have to say. The congressional, the U.S. Congressional Budget Office. And you had an article, and you're, it's called The Optimists Have Some Terrible News for the V. And you're not referring to that early 1980s television show by NBC where the aliens came and invaded. Do you remember that? that yeah, actually, I do remember that. It was, it was, it was a, um, I think, a forgettable drama. <laughs> I think they tried to remake it, too, a couple years, uh, couple years ago. Yes, unfortunately. So the V both the television show and this recovery are going to be equally as successful. And you don't need a Hollywood magazine to tell you that. You can turn to the Congressional Budget Office. They've put some numbers to this downturn and how long it may take for us to recover. And it's not very uh, optimistic. Well, let, yeah, let, let's, first let me define what I mean by calling the Congressional Budget Office mm -hmm. part of the optimist. What I mean by that is, you know, they're not just uh, optimistic by predisposition or anything like that. What I mean is they're just traditional economists. These are, you know, statisticians that use the typical DSGE and GARCH and ARCH models that run all of these simulations, the very same, similar to the, in fact, they're the same exact ones that the Federal Reserve uses or any academic economist at Princeton, Harvard, or Chicago, wherever else around the world. So in, a, in essence, they're using the same types of stochastic models as all economists do. And therefore, what they view of 
the CARES Act and the Federal Reserve and ZERP and all this QE, they view this as stimulus. That's what puts them in the optimistic class because their models say if the Fed does this, it's a positive. If the government spends this, it's a positive. So that when they're running these simulations of what the next couple of years are going to look like, they're doing so looking at CARES and ZERP and QE and all the Fed's programs as if they are helping a lot because they're programmed to believe they're helping a lot. So the, what did the CBO find after running the simulations? Well, they found that, yeah, it's going to be really bad in this quarter. And then things are going to get better. And that's, you know, everybody knows that. That's not really the issue here. It's how, what do you mean when you say things are bad and, and they get better? What are, we, what are we talking about? What are the numbers involved here? And the CBO simulations showed that unemployment rate's going to spike to about 16%, which is a little bit higher than where it is now. And then it's going to turn around and start to drop. So that by the end of next year, fourth quarter of 2021, they expect, with all of this help from the government and the Federal Reserve, that the unemployment rate will be around 8.6%, which if you'll notice on the chart that Emil is showing you here, is about equal to the worst of the Great Recession, as well as the worst of the 1981-82 recession. The two most nasty, brutal recessions of the, the entire post-war history the CBO is telling us that by the end of next year, we'll be at those levels. That's not exactly what people have in mind when they talk about, oh, this thing will be over quickly. It'll be V-shaped recovery. Here we have the most optimistic of optimistic people saying, oh, by the way, it's going to take us two years to get to a position where it was at the worst parts of 2008 and 2009. Terrible news. Yeah, there's a quote. Let me uh, read it to you, which you have in your article. It says, by the end of 2021, real GDP is projected to still be 1.6% lower, the unemployment rate 5.1% points higher, and the employment to population ratio 4.8 percentage points lower compared with the values in the fourth quarter of 2019. Jeff, can you talk a little bit about that all-important employment to population ratio? I think that's the most important uh, long-term damage that we're sustaining here. Yeah, and it's very reminiscent of the first time around, the GFC one, 2008-2009, where you know the participation problem just showed up in October of 2008, where people, you know, American workers or at least former American workers gave up on labor because they realized the situation was so bad, the economy was so crappy that they weren't going to go back to work anytime soon, and so they gave up looking for work. And essentially, that's what the, the CBO is talking about is that, hey, yeah, we can be optimistic and we've, we've run the simulations and we find out that the stimulus stuff does help. It actually, it's going to help, but it's not going to produce a recovery. That's the news here. That's the headline. It's the buried headline here, which says even these people who think stimulus is awesome know that we're in for a long haul here. And the long haul, their best case isn't really that good. In fact, it's comparable to experiencing another 2008 and 2009, assuming everything goes right. That's the point here. And I think it, it's going to be a shock to a lot of people, especially right now, because this idea that, you know, this is a short-term disruption and once it's over, it's over, has really gained currency. And I use that pun intended. Um, the, the, it's, hey, it's a disease, it's non-economic in nature, therefore once it goes away, we're all said and done. 
what we find is that, you no, know, well, yeah, that's the basis. That's what kicked off. That was the exogenous shock that shook the economy. But that's not that's all going on here. What's going on here is far more than COVID-19. And it begins, in my opinion, with the, the economy of the, the two years preceding all this, which was extremely weak, extremely fragile. And that's what we're seeing in all of these numbers. Even the CBO or the CBO is picking up on this, this fact is that, look, things are not already, you know, the first, first steps into this, this mess have already gone about as bad as they, could, they possibly could have gone. And that's going to have an impact down the road. That's why they're saying, hey, prepare yourself. We're expecting by the end of next year, we're still behind where we were in 2019. That's worse in output than the Great Recession. And, I th and what I'm sharing right now with the audience is a survey conducted by the European Commission. And it shows, of course, what your eyes are drawn to is the catastrophic fall in March and April in the confidence across industrial services, consumer, retail, trade, and construction sectors. But as you were just saying, it's, yeah, it was exogenous, the virus, but we were already in a downturn. Look at the peak confidence took place in December of 2017. So confidence across Europe, across the five broad sectors of the economy has been worsening since December 2017. And you can find that also, we we're looking at Europe, but you can find that in the United States. I'm showing the consumer confidence according to the, uh, the conference board. And you can see, again, it peaked beginning of 2018, a little bit of meandering, but it stopped growing. Jeff, what can we glean from history? This is GFC2. So what happened in GFC1? There was stimulus, there was monetary activity. Did it make up the lost ground back then? Yeah, and it's eerily similar too, right? I mean, I mean all the stuff that we're talking about today, we talked about you know, at length in 2009 in particular. Oh my God, the government's gonna spend $800 billion. I mean, at the time, that was an astronomical sum. You know, quantitative easing, the Fed's going to be printing money. That was, oh, my God, that's revolutionary. And it's all the same stuff we hear today. We heard, you know, 12 years ago, 11 years ago. And, you know, the idea is not does this stuff help? Does it create or does it, you know, the, the, the old joke, does it save jobs? Does it make it better than it would have been otherwise? The issue is entirely about recovery. And that word means something. It's not, it doesn't mean rebound. It doesn't mean get better from the low. Recovery means recovery. It means that we get back to where we were before this thing started, which is what everybody believes of right now. Recovery had meant in a business cycle, every, every post-war business cycle before 2008, recovery meant recovery. It meant we had a temporary disruption in economic activity that was soon uh, surmounted. We got through it. And on the other side of it, we went right back to potential again, which you can see 2008 was different. For the first time since the Great Depression, something changed in the economy such that we never recovered. And so the idea of you know quantitative easing in the first go around, zero interest rate policy, all this money printing the Fed supposedly did, as well as the ARRA, which was the American Recovery and Reinvestment. It's right in the name, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which at, by the end of it, a total to be about $832 billion. So we had all of this quote-unquote stimulus, 
that did not create a recovery. And when I put the get, crunch the same kind of numbers using nominal GDP, unadjusted, looking at the size of the scale of the deficits, what you find out is that, again, because of the global financial crisis the first time around, the economic disruption was so enormous that even if you had accredited something like the ARA dollar for dollar spent all at once, it still wouldn't have been enough to fill the size of the economic hole. You know, by the way, you know, the 4% baseline that I'd used in my previous calculations was really a um, conservative estimate based on a lower grade economic growth. In reality, between 1984 and 2007, the, the, the modern, quote, great moderation uh, baseline was closer to 6% nominal growth. And that's really the bar that we should use in evaluating all of these things. And so the chart that you're showing below there, Emil, the, these gaps that we're, we're we're calculating. What you see is, despite the Fed, despite the government, despite the IRA, over time, we can break it up into six quarter segments, this gap between the prior baseline, whichever one you want to use, and where economic output actually ended up, kept growing and growing and growing. So not only did, okay, I mean, did the ARA help? Maybe it did. Maybe it did, maybe it did save jobs, but it certainly didn't lead or contribute to a recovery because there wasn't one. Instead of this V-shape that everyone had been promised through all of the spending and stimulus back in 2008, 2009, we got this lack of recovery that over time, everybody just gave up on and said, well, this must be the best that we can do. Now, the reason we're going through this, this exercise is not just you know, pointless uh, historical review. This is not just a mere academic you know, uh, routine. What we're doing is, Okay, this is how it happened 12 years ago. And again, these things are very similar in nature, very similar in the way that they were carried out. What can we therefore expect of the same kinds of things that are being conducted right now as we speak? Now, what economists will say is that, well, no, 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 we're doing it all differently. And we learned our lessons from 2008. There's more direct payments. There's less grants to you know, shovel-ready projects, that kind of crap. And we're, we're condensing all the spending all at once. That's what they'll say is they're doing different. So they're doing the same things, but they're doing differently. And that, my answer to that is, look, they're not, they're just doing the same things. And maybe they're doing more of them, but our economic hole is that much bigger too. So we, why would we expect, and this is what you really have to ask yourself if you're being honest and trying to analyze what comes next, why would we expect it to be different this time? What are the things that make you believe that this outcome will be different than the last outcome. When we have that outcome right in front of us, it's right there. We can use it as, an, as a way to evaluate these things. It's been tested, empirically tested in actual practice. Why do you think it's gonna be different this time around? That's what you really have to ask yourself. And where it gets even more complicated, not less complicated, is that not only do we seeing the same types of, of, of activities on the government side, quote unquote stimulus, we're already seeing the same kinds of behavior, negative types of behavior in the business sector, the consumer sector, labor force, as you pointed out, Emil, with the large drop in the labor force. We're already seeing the same things happen that we saw in 2008 and 2009. So if your argument is this time is gonna be different, you know, <laughs> we've got a lot more to explain because so far, a hell of a lot of it is exactly the same, including the expectations, this period where everybody says, oh, this is nothing, it'll all, go, it'll all pass. That was the middle of 2008. Everybody said the same thing. The government was going to take care of this. Ben Bernanke had it covered. No, by the way, he didn't have a damn thing covered. 
Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research at Alhambra Investments. You can read his weekly work at Real Clear Markets, and you can find him on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. Jeff, you were just saying that we're seeing that same sort of behavior. So you're saying some things, and that's your opinion. You're obviously very well thought of, but maybe you're just one person. You could be wrong. But the same sort of behavior is being exhibited by corporations. And in your article, which is What Flood, you're talking about how the recent commercial and industrial loan data from the Federal Reserve is showing that corporations are reaching desperately for liquidity, suggesting that they are not expecting there to be a quick recovery or that the stimulus is really going to smooth things over or that the central banks are providing enough liquidity. Can you talk a little bit about your article, What Flood? And normally commercial industrial loans are the basis for capital expenditure, CapEx, you know, productive investments. So you normally want to see commercial industrial loans rise. It, it indicates, you know, both sides, the healthy banking system that perceives, you know, general opportunities in that sector, plus corporate perceptions of a positive economic future, such that they want to invest more into it. So normally you want to see commercial industrial loans rising. What we did find, again, going back to our earlier discussion about before all of this, going back to December of 2018, what you actually saw was that commercial industrial loans had flatlined. And going back to August of last year, they had actually shrunk a little bit. So again, along, you know, our, 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 our uh, initial condition argument is that you know, banks as well as companies weren't all that thrilled about the economic climate for a year or more before we ever got to uh, March of 2020. Since March of 2020, though, what you see is this absolutely enormous spike in commercial and industrial lending, banks providing all sorts of loans and, and, and companies doing all sorts of borrowing. We've never seen any kind of, you know, not, nothing like this in the entire series, going back to, I think, the 1960s. You've never seen a 25% spike like this, especially in a, in a, in a small period of, of just two months. And so you think, well, could it be that Jay Powell's magic actually worked for once? You know, low interest rates and stimulus. Businesses are ready for that inflationary future everybody's talking about. Well, no. I mean, and, you know, the answer was given to us in any number of ways. I mean, there was, there was, a, there was a number of stories contemporaneously where uh, in the mainstream media where it was, you know, people talked about the companies were drawing down revolving lines of credit because they were terrified at how the credit markets had completely dried up. And that, that uh, brought up memories, very bad memories from 2008 and 2009, when you know, even the best companies in the world were forced to beg at the Federal Reserve's door for just basic working capital liquidity. So companies have in their heads, in their minds, at the back of their minds from the last time around, that you know, our survival is at stake in these kinds of things because we can run out of cash. Forget about business, forget about revenue. Strictly, cash. we don't have enough cash in our accounts to buy material or pay workers. That's survival 101. And so what we're seeing here is the, the, commer the commercial sector, the, the US business sector, by borrowing on these revolvers and doing so in a way that we've never seen before, what they're saying is we're building up a liquidity, not just a liquidity cushion, a liquidity bunker, because we don't trust the markets. We don't trust that the Fed has flooded the system with with dollars, as everybody seems to say, we're not preparing for an inflationary breakout. 
we're preparing for honest to goodness deflation. We're hoarding cash in the same manner as companies did in the early 1930s. And at, at, at practically the same kinds of levels and in the same kinds of ways. And so that's an indication of what we just talked about of seeing all of the bad types of behavior. If you're thinking this time is gonna be different, it's gonna go better than 2008, 2009, this is an indication of, well, maybe it's actually gonna go worse than 2008, 2009. Now we don't know that yet, but what I'm saying is that we're seeing these kinds of behaviors that are not indicative of a V, not even, the, I'm not talking about, about the CBO's V, let alone the, uh, the best case V that everybody's, everybody's talking about now, which says we're just gonna go right back to normal. Screw that, I mean, we're way past that. I don't think that's even a possibility anymore. Our best case we can hope for is something like the CBO's estimates where maybe by the end of next year, we're back to even. But when you see this type of behavioral shift, not just in, it's not just commercial industrial loans where this, this cash flow is taking place. It also answers why the jobless claims have spiked so much because when you're, when you're, when you're zeroed in on your cash position, when you're zeroed in on liquidity risk, what do you do? You overmanage your cost chart. You cut everything you can possibly cut. You cut to the bone. And that includes, obviously, the biggest expense for any business is usually labor. And so that's why we keep seeing jobless claims rise, even though we're, you know, we're into the last week, almost the last week of May. It's been 10 weeks of this, and 41 million people, approximately 41 million American workers, have been forcefully separated from their employers because everybody is hoarding cash, everybody's hoarding resources, understanding that what comes next may not be all that, all that much better than what we've already done so far. And so getting back to this idea that we're just gonna get through this and everything will be done, we're already seeing signs that no, that's not gonna be the case. Jeff, I think people, when they hear these numbers, they'll say, well, it's very bad, but we understand because it was because of the disease or the government forcing this. The part that I want to underline for everyone is what happened before that suggested we were already in, let's call it a depression, a silent depression, at least some sort of a downturn, or a, a period where businesses did not look forward to the future as opportunity. And that is the number of claims leading up to this surge. Now, the number of claims is actually lower more recently, as you're going to show in, we're going to show in a graph from uh, 2017 until 2020, the number of claims for unemployment insurance was less than the number of claims that we saw in the early 2005-2007 period. You would think, wow, that's great. That means the economy is functioning. Not a lot of people are being fired. But you point out something more important that's suggestive of what was happening underneath. Yeah, they're substantially lower, right? I mean, if you compare 2007 and to 2017, it's a big difference, huge difference. You know, there was about 25, 26 million claims back in 2007 and 2000, you know, a year and a half period we're talking about back on the charts here. So in a year and a half, 2007 and early 2008, it was 26 million jobless claims. Compared to 2017, 2018, where it was just 17 million. So, you know, that's a big difference. Why are there so few jobless claims? And of course, you know, the mainstream explanation is, well, the economy was booming, right? Everything was great. The labor market was on fire. So why would, no. 
you know, it gets back to the participation problems and how companies, not just banks, but companies underwent a radical paradigm shift because of 2008 and 2009. As you just said, they looked at the future very differently. Look, companies have looked at the economic circumstances and economic future in exactly the same way the bond market has. It's looked at everything and said, you know, things are not going well. This economy is not booming. Therefore, I'm not really going to hire many more people except if I absolutely positively need them. So when you, when you operate on that minimal level of labor activity, which is the participation problem from the corporate side of things, when you operate that way, you're not going to lay off people because you can't. You're operating at absolute minimum, so there's not going to be many layoffs. That's why there were so few jobless claims leading up to the to the uh, you know 2020 global financial crisis number two. And of course, you have that 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 lack of growth. You have that lack of of recovery from you know 11 years ago. Plus, you had this this you know downturn heading the wrong way over the last couple of years it all adds up into, you know, it's the worst types of ingredients that adds up into this explosion and, you know, what we've called the economic hole, which we think charitably is about three, three, maybe four trillion and likely could end up being much more if we keep seeing these types of behaviors from especially the corporate side. We haven't even talked about the consumer side yet, how consumer behavior is almost certainly going to change because people are not going to be as freewheeling and spending on the other side of this either. But let's set that, I mean, just from the corporate side of things, just from the bank side of things, we're already seeing the types of behavior, we're already seeing the types of numbers and the, and the results that suggest this is, you know, what, what happens on the other side of this is not going right back to the way things were. So most charitably, it's, you know, it's a V, but it's not really a V. <laughs> and that's the best case. It's a V with the lizard people coming out and scaring you again. You'd have to have watched this 1983 uh, TV show. At the end of your article of uh, What Flood, you bring up another very important point, and that's corporate profits. I don't know if many people know that depending on how you look at it, you could look at it two ways at least. If you look at corporate profits in the United States, they have not grown since 2012. Can you imagine, Jeff? You are heading into a shock, and for eight years, your profits have been flat. I mean, they've gone down, they've gone up, but they've never really escaped from where they were in 2012. To your point, again, no wonder unemployment levels never recovered, and, because, and no wonder that so many companies are firing as quickly as possible, because they've been fighting for 12 years to just try to stay alive to keep the lights on. Can you talk a little bit about corporate profits in America? Yeah, well, I think you covered it pretty much. It's really a simple thing and it's really intuitive, right? Companies that don't make money aren't gonna to add to their cost structure. And it becomes, you know, it's, it's almost a chicken and the egg problem. If they're not optimistic because their profits are down, they're not gonna invest, they're not gonna hire, therefore how can it ever become optimistic? How can we actually have economic growth? And this is actually liquidity. Of preferences being expressed in terms of profits, in terms of, of limited labor utilization, those types of things too. What companies are saying is, look, we're going to run everything at the absolute minimum because we don't see any reason to do anything different. And you're right to point out there's different ways to measure profits. What we're talking about here is real economic profits, the actual profits from business. What, what most people might be more familiar with 
are the profits that are expressed in terms of earnings per share for the S&P 500, where those have been rising, especially in 2018, because companies have been buying back their shares. Now that doesn't help your business. That helps you know, make, it, make your share price look a little bit better. What we're interested in is economic behavior and the economic basis for that behavior. What we're seeing from profits, from the liquidity side, from the labor side, we're seeing all of these indications that, you know, this is not a short-term disruption. Yes, the economic shock itself was a short-term disruption, but there's more going on here that you need to be aware of in order to expect, you know, in a, in a rational way, what, what we're going to look at for the rest of this year and into next year. Why invest in employment, infrastructure, construction, expanding your business when, and all the other socially redeemable uh, aspects of uh, corporate profits, when instead you could go to the stock market and uh, purchase your own shares? That seems to be a better return. And, you know, it, I know it's not socially redeemable to say that, but if you look at these graphs that you're showing, it makes more sense because profits have been stagnant to falling for years now. There's no end consumer demand. And of course, it'll all come back to what happened in 2008. Jeff, thank you very much for your time. And let's talk again next week. Thanks, Emil.